It's Monday, February 25th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Another big week in politics is coming up as the president is making his way to Vietnam for the second summit with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. Still aiming for the goal of complete denuclearization, the president says he is in no rush as long as missile testing has stopped. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and the House vote to overturn Trump's emergency declaration. Next, new research suggests that a controversial gene editing experiment to make twin girls in China resistant to HIV may have also altered their brains and enhanced their ability to learn and form memories. Lulu and Nana had their genes modified before birth using the CRISPR editing tool. Antonio Regalado, reporter for the MIT Technology Review, joins us for more on the CRISPR twins. Finally, emoji are having another moment. As we use them more in our everyday communication, it's increasingly starting to show up as evidence in court. Between 2004 and 2019, there has been an exponential rise in emoji and emoticon references in U.S. court opinions. The problem is, not everyone can always agree on what the emoji actually mean. Dami Lee, reporter at The Verge, joins us for emoji in court. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Our objectives are clear. Our mission is clear. President Trump's also said this is going to take time. There may have to be another summit. We may not get everything done uh, this week. We hope we'll make a substantial step along the way. I've, my team is on the ground today, continuing to flesh out a roadmap for a path forward between the two countries. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. We're uh, getting ready for another big week of politics. First and foremost is going to be Trump's second summit with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. There's a lot of pressure on this one. The last time we walked away with you know, just kind of a pretty vague declaration that there would be some type of denuclearization thing happening. But still to this day, both sides have not fully agreed on what exactly a complete denuclearization will look like. Tell us a little bit more about this. President Trump and Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea, are both headed to Vietnam for the second of their summits. After the first win, Donald Trump declared victory, said it was a great <laughs> right. win. And then there was a lot of criticism afterwards that he hadn't actually got the North Koreans to agree to anything, that there wasn't a denuclearization, that they could still very easily continue their nuclear program, and that more needed to be had. So now here we are at meeting number two. And this time, I think it will be harder for the president to declare victory if there's not real tangible steps or agreements or something more. Uh, we saw Secretary of State Pompeo Sunday morning on CNN and on Fox News saying that he did think that there would be more demonstrable steps. He did think that there would be something clearer that, that could be pointed to this time and that they were engaged in the process. I and mean, you had to let the process sort of play itself out. The president himself also said, you know, he's in no rush because they're not testing missile launches anymore. So it's kind of OK, just tamping down expectations. And then if you look at his Twitter feed, the president is saying, you know, Chairman Kim realizes that without nuclear weapons, the country could fast become one of the great economic powers anywhere in the world. So I know this is the line that he's feeding Chairman Kim there to say, hey, get rid of these things. Then we can work on sanctions and things like that and bring some more money back to the country. We have to try to piece together a little bit how much of President Trump's tweets are 
targeted at the North Koreans, are targeted at our allies in other countries, and are targeted at his own voters. We know that his strong base follows his tweets very closely. And we also know if we look at his polling over the last two years, his approval ratings were the highest when he met with leader Kim Jong-un the first time. That might be why it's not a coincidence you see them <laughs> meeting again. Right. So, so this is really a, a multifaceted effort on the president's part. Yeah. I mean, even though nothing really substantive came out the last time, they have not been testing as many missile launches or anything like that. So that is kind of a win for the president. And, you know, he continues to tout that. Another big thing that people were saying was going to happen was the release of the Mueller report this coming week. It now seems like that might not happen, but it's still all signs point to it is ramping down and it should be all over pretty soon after two years of this. 21 months of uh, investigation appears to be close to an end. We don't have a date certain. There was a lot of speculation that it could come this week. We don't think that to be the case now. Although to be clear, Robert Mueller isn't putting out, you know, calendars advising us as to when it's going to show up. So he could always surprise us. You need that caveat. It might have been best for the president if it did come this week. Might have gotten lost a little bit in his Korea coverage, although that's unlikely. But the big question that is unanswered is that when it comes, when Mueller finishes that report, who exactly is going to get to see it? There has been some indication that it will not be released publicly. There is some concern among Democratic lawmakers that it will not be turned over to lawmakers, that they may be forced to resort to trying to subpoena it. And the new Attorney General, William Barr, has said he expects to read it and then maybe draft his own report based on that report to give to Congress. Yeah. And Adam Schiff, uh, one of the top House Democrats, is saying that they're going to call Robert Mueller to Capitol Hill and subpoena documents, do whatever they can to make as much of it public as possible. But you're right about William Barr. He said, if anything comes out, it's going to be his interpretation of it. You won't ever see anything that Mueller wrote down there. So we'll see how that uh, develops as well. And then the last big thing that's going to be happening this week, House Democrats set Tuesday to vote on overturning the emergency declaration to get more funds for the border wall. It's expected to pass in the House. The Senate is a different story. They need, uh, I think, four uh, Republican members to come across and vote against it. Easily going to pass in the House. There is still a good chance that it will pass in the Senate. Maine Senator Susan Collins has said she intends to vote with Democrats. We saw even Missouri Senator Roy Blunt on television Sunday morning saying that he is undecided, leaving open the possibility that he would vote with Democrats. He's a pretty conservative guy, so if you lose Blunt, you might be a sign that you're losing a few more. But really, most Republicans think that it could be a free vote, that Trump would would veto it, that they would be unable to get the support to, to override that veto. And the big thing is, is everybody's still angry that he went around Congress. A lot of even conservative commentators, GOP opinion leaders saying that he it's an overreach of the presidential authority. And when President Obama was using a lot of executive actions, they did not like it. There could be enough Republicans to pass this, but not enough Republicans to override when the president is expected to veto it. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Is your New Year's resolution to get a new job? Then it's time to get to know Express Employment Professionals. Your local Express office is your connection to a new job. You can even complete your application over the phone. Express prepares job seekers for interviews and has relationships with businesses to find you a job. Job seekers never pay any fees at Express, and each year, more than half a million people find work through Express. Find a location near you at ExpressPros.com or download the Express Jobs app. 
One Express associate, Ian, said, I began my job search online while finishing my undergrad degree. I applied for an electrical job and was asked to come in for an interview with Express. I interviewed for the job the next week and then started later at a new job as a panel builder. Ultimately, I was offered a full-time position with an Express client company, and I truly enjoyed all aspects of my job, the work, the coworkers, and the pay. I owe this opportunity to Express, and I want to thank Express. Don't go it alone any longer in your job search. Get to know Express. Visit ExpressPros.com or download the Express Jobs app. The thing that happened in China, though, is that they took out a gene that's kind of a normal gene that people have. So even the HIV resistance idea was a kind of enhancement. The problem is that biology is just not at, at a place where it can say what are the consequences of changing most genes. Joining us now is Antonio Regalado, reporter for the MIT Technology Review. We're going to be talking about these CRISPR twins that were born in China last year. They're called Lulu and Nana, and when it happened last November... The scientific community was kind of in an uproar over this. They couldn't understand why this Chinese scientist had went through with this, I don't know if you want to call it experiment, where he gene edited these babies to make them more resistant to HIV. The scientific community was just really angry at them and said that it violated all sorts of ethical standards. They're going to have to live their whole lives really for us to find out the extent of how successful it was or what happens to them. And now we're finding out that there could have been some alterations to their brains as well. What do we know about what's going on with this, Antonio? The reason that the scientists in China set out, they said, to make human beings resistant to HIV. And the way you do that, or the way they did it, was to use a gene editing tool called CRISPR to basically zap and take out a gene in, in embryos called CCR5. CCR5 is a gene that's important for HIV infection. HIV uses this to get inside your cells. So if you don't have it, you could be immune to HIV. But it turns out that CCR5 has other functions, including in the brain. It's becoming clear there was just a paper published which showed that people who lack CCR5 naturally recover from strokes a lot quicker than people who don't. And there could be a connection to... Uh, intelligence that's not clear and in mice definitely mice that lack this gene are a lot better at memory tests so ccr5 in addition to its role in hiv seems to be a kind of a candidate for making super babies super intelligent babies right and, and that's always been kind of at the forefront of these types of discussions is the super babies the designer babies you can create a person who is smarter and a lot of these concerns with this were the unintended consequences you know things that change human biology and then they can be passed on as with these these two girls you know they're going to grow up if they're healthy they might live full complete lives they might have children and this thing might be passed on and we just don't know how it could change everything for humans that's why people were very resistant to these gene editing tools being used on humans there's certain cases where there's sort of more support for using them where it's a genetic error that you want to fix. It's very clear. You know, it's the genetic error that causes Huntington's disease for right. something or something. It's, it's very clear that it's very bad and that getting rid of it would be good. The thing that happened in China, though, is that they took out a gene. It's kind of a normal gene that people have. So even the HIV resistance idea was a kind of enhancement. And the truth is people don't know the consequences of doing that. It could make you more susceptible to the flu, for instance, some people think. 
the problem is that biology is just not at, at a place where it can say what are the consequences of changing most genes. That makes it a really crazy thing to do. The World Health Organization has formed a new committee to set guidelines for scientists who are editing human DNA. They're going to come out with some type of regulations, recommendations, guidelines, whatever they want to set up. But catch us up with what's going on with this Chinese scientist right now. I mean, where he was working, the lab has kind of said, hey, you know, he did all of this without our permission. The scientific community at large has not agreed with what he did at all. To tell you the truth, you're mentioning this new World Health Organization committee. There have been a lot of committees weighing in on this gene editing, and most of them have said, well, maybe you shouldn't do it, or you should do it really carefully and only for certain conditions. So they've kind of given a yellow light to the whole process. They, they really have. And this scientist in China, J.K. He is his name, he just sped through the yellow light. So the scientific community itself has kind of endorsed these approaches, and I think that they're a little bit responsible for the fact that it happened. Where is J.K. He, you want to know? Uh, last seen under a form of sort of house arrest by the New York Times. They found him at his university up on a balcony, but barred in and with lots of guards outside his apartment. As far as I can tell, no one has heard from him recently. And so the question of where he is and what is happening to him is a big one. There is an investigation in China. It's really unclear what kind of penalty he might receive. Do we know what's going on with the twins? Because he was the lead scientist on this project. He's obviously not involved anymore. And I'm sure they're going to have to be followed and studied and, and analyzed for many years to come. So uh, do we know what's going on with them at all? They ought to be followed and studied. And in fact, to even understand what he really did to them, you would need some tissue from these twins. You'd need uh, blood samples and et cetera to, to actually find out what has happened. There is a question of whether the twins even exist. He said that they do. Most of the evidence out there points to the idea that, in fact, he did create these twins. The Chinese government has said that he did, but still, we haven't seen the twins, right? Nobody in the media that I know of has actually seen the twins, so there's kind of a big question mark regarding who they are, where they are, and what's happening with them. We just don't know. There is a subtext here that we should talk about, which is sort of the hubris involved in thinking that you can make human beings that are smarter, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the things about people compared to, you know, the rest of the animal kingdom is that we're pretty smart, right? It's a very human thing, like it's having like an opposable thumb. So it's something that we value a lot. And the genetic engineers, they're sort of naturally led to the idea like, well, couldn't we improve the brain? And then there's people in positions with a lot of power, billionaires and whatnot, who are kind of interested in this subject as well, smarter people. So it kind of careens pretty quickly into a, a eugenics territory. And that's why we wrote the story pointing out that an attempt to increase intelligence or enhance the brain, inadvertent or otherwise, may have already happened. Antonio Regalado, reporter for the MIT Technology Review. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, man. Thanks. There's just a lot more emotion showing up, and it's happening across like all types of legal cases. So it most frequently happens in sexual harassment cases, but it can also show up in contract cases. Joining us now is Dami Lee, reporter at The Verge. I love stories like this that talk about language and, and the way we use technology and how everything is changing and then also how rapidly everything is changing. Right now, emoji and emoticon are showing up in court cases at an exponential level and the courts aren't really prepared. I mean, just think in your own head when uh, somebody sends you a message and you lean over to the next person and you say, hey, what do these emoji mean? Or I don't know what this one means. Uh, I think it means this. So that's kind of what's happening in a lot of court cases. Tell us a little bit more about this. So 30% of all the cases that 
had emoji out of like all the emoji tracked from 2004 to 2019, 30% of those cases all appeared in 2018. So, you know, these emoji are showing up exponentially. And the first case of it was an emoticon in 2004. And as we head towards, you know, present day, we're seeing more emoji instead of emoticon. And that's happening because, you know, people are communicating with each other more, whether it's over text message or Instagram DMs, any kind of communication that's happening there's just a lot more emojis showing up and it's happening across like all types of legal cases. So it most frequently happens in sexual harassment cases, but it can also show up in contract cases. There was a case in Israel where a couple was sued for not following through on a deal they had with a landlord. They made it appear like they were going to sign on an apartment and they sent a bunch of these enthusiastic emojis like ranging from a chipmunk to a champagne bottle and a comet. And the landlord took this enthusiasm to mean that they were going to sign the lease. And then when they ended up dropping out and stopped responding to the landlord, the landlord said they acted on bad faith and they were actually charged. They sent an emoji back with a champagne bottle. Okay, maybe that one means a celebration. Mm -hmm. A squirrel and a comet. <laughs> yeah. A little more hard, a little harder to decipher. What does that really mean? So, uh, yeah, in a casual text, you can say, hey, somebody's excited about this. Yeah, let's go for it. But for the courts to have to kind of decide the intent behind that, what was the context of all of that? That could get into some murky territory. There's a uh, University of uh, Santa Clara law professor. His name is Eric Goldman, who's been tracking a lot of these and as you said, you know, it started in 2004 with the emoticons and you can even see the trajectory of how it changed in about 2014, 2015, there was that big shift where people weren't using emoticons so much mm -hmm. anymore, but the emojis had taken prominence there. Give us a few more examples of how these emojis are, are playing out in some court cases. There was one in the Bay Area after a guy got right. arrested in a prostitution thing. It's interesting because none of these cases that are are tracked didn't really hinge on you know the interpretation right. of a particular emoji, but it was rather that the emoji were providing like evidentiary support. So in the Bay Area case, it was a case about sex trafficking, and the defendant was sending these Instagram DMs to a victim and sending her messages like "Is you down for the crown?" and there was a Emoji, and they brought in an expert to testify that he's basically asking her if she will accept him as his pimp and the crown symbolizes the pimp is the king. And what's interesting about this case is that the expert that was called in here, he's not an emoji expert, but he's an expert specializing in sex trafficking cases. And they are familiar with the phrases and terms that are used in those communities. So there's not really any person who can be called an emoji expert just because emoji have so many different dialects and they have different meanings depending on who's using them. So right. in these future cases, even if more emoji are showing up, we're not going to see emoji experts being called in. And that's the interesting part of this. As you said, maybe some of these cases haven't necessarily hinged on these emojis being like the thing that's going to turn the case around. But increasingly, as we this becomes the norm in our communication and they're constantly seizing electronic communications for people to prove whatever they need to in a case, these emojis are going to be just more prevalent in that. And yeah, there is no emoji expert. I think there was a case where it was had to do with some sexual harassment and an emo set of emojis was sent that had horses and then one that looked like a muffin. So <laughs> the lawyer had to say, you know, what is, what does this mean to so just one of her colleagues? And they said, Oh, I think it means stud muffin. 
And then they had mm-hmm. to go to court and argue that these texts meant stud muffin. And yes, the guy was being harassed and different things like that. So these interpretations, while they might not be the linchpin right now of a case, but you can just imagine it showing up more and more. Right. And it just gets so complicated because emoji are also depicted differently across different platforms. So yes. if you have an iPhone, you might be seeing a different emoji than an Android user. In addition to that, some of these emoji aren't even being printed in court opinions just because the electronic documents, they can't handle emoji. Yeah, that's so important. I've only had an iPhone as a, I had a Blackberry back in the day and then iPhone and that's the only thing I've had. So I don't even know how some of these emojis would show up on an Android. And I know that there are differences, but, you know, a, a, you know, a smirky face on, on my iPhone can mean something totally different on Android. So it's just interesting to, to see how the prevalence of these emojis now and the way we use it in communication is showing up in these court cases. It's so interesting. Dami Lee, reporter at The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.